Amen. You can be seated, yes. Good morning. Thank you. Do I look as tired as, as you do? I, saw, I caught one yawning right over there, Joe. I saw that. I'm curious, uh, though, I'm curious, does anyone actually have to set their clock forward anymore? Or are we, I mean, I don't. It just automatically, the, the phone is my clock. Does anyone actually do that at your bedside? A few old timers here? On the nightstand, still has to be manually, manually done. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. I know we have to do it the next day, but I'm just saying going the night before, does that, that actually have to happen? So we'll keep reminding you then to do that, okay? Uh, how about this? At the tail end of spring break, what were the uh, best spring break destinations? Who went the furthest among us this morning? I know we have some Disney World folks. Where else did you go? Anyone? Are we all here this week? Austin. Okay, anybody else? No, no. I went to the west side of Frisco to uh, Urban Air this week. Yeah, it was a great time, great time, at least for the kids. Anybody else? Come on, no one wants to brag on where you went for spring break? What's the, what? OSU, still are. God bless you. Okay, that's the winner right there. Anybody else? Furthest destination. You guys are a lame audience. Oh my goodness. This is all the staycationers. They're still gone this morning, the people that traveled. I do know this. I do know that one family among us is in Italy this morning, I believe. I don't know. Uh, in Rome, Jim and Jill Hessen are enjoying a little uh, trip in Italy. So uh, put that map up there, uh, if you don't mind, Stephanie. Did anyone make it to uh, Philippi this week? <laughs> you know, that's what we're studying. Rome, actually, where's Rome, guys? It's a bit over here, right? Rome is over here. Texas is over here, somewhere, Frisco, McKinney, somewhere like that. We're talking in this series uh, about the church in Philippi, okay? None of us have taken a spring break trip to Philippi, I guess, but the Apostle Paul did. In the book of Acts, we started this, introduced this series last week. The Apostle Paul traveled to the church, or traveled to Philippi and formed a church in Acts chapter 16, excuse me, okay? So you see uh, his travels here beginning at, at Antioch. He goes this way, that little purple line. He wants to go up here, but Acts chapter 16 says the Spirit would not let him. And when he got over here to Troas, he had a vision. He had a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And so the apostle Paul and and Timothy travel over here to Philippi. uh, And this is about the year 51 AD that Paul first goes to Philippi. Okay. He took three uh, spring break trips, the Apostle Paul, okay? Uh, the second spring break trip is the one to Philippi. All right, I'm being facetious here, obviously. Is that, is that okay? Uh, we have some dates on this, just to get kind of the timeline of things. Paul uh, travels to Philippi in 51 AD, okay? Just to help you out. Jesus dies, is resurrected about 33 AD approximately. The apostle Paul is converted within a year, pretty closely after Jesus' resurrection. And then Paul goes to Philippi, 51 AD, but he's writing the book of Philippians in 61 AD. So about 10 years after he had been there, okay? Uh, We have good reason to think that he went and formed the church, the Acts chapter 16, and then he probably went back briefly, so he was actually there two times. But 10 years later, he's writing this 
letter that we're going to study for basically the rest of the school year, probably on into June a little bit, actually. And it is a wonderful, just four chapters, but wonderfully affectionate letter to this church in Philippi. If you were here last week, you know that I showed you a wonderfully uh, important, affectionate letter that I had received last week. And that was a letter from my son, Braxton. See, it's, I was in bed last week. It says, sorry, you're sick. You open that baby up. You are very special to me. You are very awesome. Isn't that great? This was hand delivered to me last week as I was fighting allergies, had a terrible uh, headache, and was... Uh, in bed asleep. The book of Philippians was also hand-delivered by a guy named Epaphroditus. We're going to hear about Epaphroditus over in chapter 2, verses 25. Epaphroditus is with Paul. I should probably say Paul is probably, most scholars think that Paul is over here in Rome as he's writing back to the church of Philippi. And uh, he sends Epaphroditus back with this letter 10 years later to the church in Philippi. And that is where we are, uh, where we find ourselves this semester, looking at this wonderfully affectionate letter to the church in Philippi. One of the unique things about Philippians is of all Paul's letters, uh, it's really the most positive. I mean, and if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, which is also written by Paul, Galatians, read a lot of Paul's letters, and there are places in those letters where he's writing to those churches because quite frankly, uh, like us, they have messed up. They're screwing up. And he's writing them instructions on how to get right. He gives them a little rebuke. But in the book of Philippians, it is amazingly positive. There's a little bit of charge in chapter 4 about two kind of disputing, uh, fighting women in the church. And he says, hey, you women, quit arguing. But that's basically, okay, uh, surely that never happens today, right? Uh, but basically, it's a, it's, it's a very positive letter. And I'm excited for us to journey through. I'm very excited about uh, journeying through this. And today, guess what we get to cover today? The first two verses. Yes, again, the first two verses. So uh, open your Bibles, if you have one, to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 and 2, okay? That's it, verses 1 and 2. And you may be thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to take forever to get through this book. Hang on, we will. I, I went, uh, while you're opening there to Philippians chapter 1, when I was uh, in college, I attended a church where I went to college, Oklahoma State University over here, thank you, uh, that was a very strong Bible teaching church. And I remember one time attending that church and the pastor was beginning this sermon series on 1 Corinthians and he just did the very first verse of the letter, and I thought as he began, I'm like, how is he going to spend 30 minutes talking about a greeting, just the first verse of this letter? And guess what? He did it. And guess what? If you can't beat him, join him. So here we go, okay? The first two verses, uh, let me read that for us, and then we'll pray for our time, okay? Verse 1 and verse 2, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we go. Let's pray. Father God, would you open our eyes, uh, open our heart to the riches that are contained right here in two power-packed verses. God, we pray that we would uh, walk out of here this morning not... Um, 
just motivated, but we would walk out of here motivated and changed even as we are here by the truth of your word. Holy Spirit, come and give to each heart here what we need to hear. Father, be with me, be with each person here as we look into your word and change us, God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, so here's a little preview of what I see in just these first two verses, okay? I basically see five couplets, uh, five pairs of things. You can uh, divide it like this, and we'll move through this quickly here, but to the Philippians, I see two authors, two offices, two gifts, two persons, and two identities. If you're counting, that's five points, but they're couplets, so it's actually 10 points, so you're asking, how is he going to get through two verses in 30 minutes, plus or minus? Uh, but we're going to do it. We're going to kind of cruise through here, and the way it narrows down is the two authors are Paul and Timothy, the two offices are overseers and deacons, the two gifts are grace and peace, the two persons, father and son, and the two identities, saint and servant. And I hope to spend the most amount of time on saint and servants here, okay? So if I'm dragging, just give me the sign. Speed it up, Ross. Okay, speed it up. So uh, here we go. First of all, the two authors. We basically have already mentioned this, but Paul and Timothy are writing here. Timothy is a young guy that Paul has brought along Uh, This is the beginning. As he goes to Philippi in Acts chapter 16, this is his first mission trip with Paul. And what a mission trip it was so that he would meet the people in Philippi, this first mission trip he was on, this first church that he sees forms. He has a dear place, Timothy does, in his heart for the Philippians. Paul picks Timothy up Uh, In Acts chapter 16, the first few verses, most scholars believe that Timothy became a believer on Paul's first missionary journey as Paul visited uh, Derby and Lystra. You can put that map back up there and I'll show you where Derby and Lystra are, uh, probably where uh, Timothy lived, somewhere around here. So on first, Paul's first missionary journey, he goes right up here. And then he comes back, he comes back around to Antioch here. But first missionary journey, he meets Paul. And then second missionary journey, as he's traveling along here, he's lost one of his companions. So he says, Timothy, come with me. You're joining the trip. And so Timothy travels with him. And finally, up in Acts uh, 16, he meets this, these folks in Philippi. So it's Paul and Timothy. It's surprising that Paul was writing this letter because if you read in the book of Acts chapter 8, you see that Paul and others have been persecuting the church. Paul becomes a Christian. His conversion is told in Acts chapter 9, if you want to read that. But this guy, Saul, now called Paul, who once persecuted the church, is now building the church is now forming churches, is now encouraging churches. So it's Paul and Timothy together writing back to Philippi 10 years later, giving them these warm and affectionate instructions. Secondly, there are two offices. Notice that he's not just writing, Paul and Timothy, I should also say servants of Christ Jesus. We'll come back to that in a second. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And who's he writing to? To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, he could just stop there. He could just say, I'm writing to the saints in Philippi. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm writing to the saints, but also with the overseers and deacons. Now, here's the point I want to make this morning, that all churches, as Paul established them, as they were established in the early days of the church, all churches eventually had 
both overseers and deacons. Maybe not all had deacons, but all had overseers. Or sometimes you could, a synonym for overseer could be the word elder or bishop. You'll, you will read, as you read through the New Testament, you will read overseer, elder, and bishop. And those three terms are used by the Apostle Paul and others as synonyms. The point here is that Paul is saying, in this church at Philippi, there are the saints, there is the believing body made up of people like Lydia that we looked at last week, made up of people like a little slave girl who was once demon-possessed, and also made up of a Philippian jailer who meets Jesus and is baptized with his family. It's made up of saints, but also in the church, there are these overseers, these elders or these bishops, as well as deacons. What are these offices? Acts 14, 23 says that Paul went around as he traveled and he appointed elders in each city, in each church. And the appointment of elders was at least threefold the way we understand it. The overseers were to oversee, okay, thus the word, but elders, their their responsibility also is to shepherd the flock, to teach the flock, and to manage the church, okay? Oversee, shepherd, and teach. That's primarily the role of an elder in a church. Here at Centennial Church, we have four elders, if you weren't aware of it. We have followed this model. Our elders, you see them listed there. I am one of those four elders. We believe that the function of the elders in Philippi as well as at Centennial Church are to oversee, to shepherd the flock, and also they are primary teachers. The only job description in 1 Timothy chapter 3 the elders are given is that they must be able to teach So we believe and we see modeled here in the church of Philippi that that New Testament churches, that biblical churches have elders who perform these functions. But later as the church developed and as as it got bigger, as it got more complex as an organism and as an organization, Paul also instructs us to appoint deacons. The word deacon comes from a Greek word diakonos. Diakonos, you can hear the word deacon in there. The word basically just is a word that means servant. So overseers are elders, deacons are servants. And we see the model for deacons in Acts chapter 6. As the church got bigger and there was this need to feed people that were going hungry, to take care of the widows, the apostles and the elders appointed deacons to take that role so that the elders could concentrate on the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. So the elders, the apostles appointed these seven deacons in Acts chapter 6, to take care of the needs of the church. So we believe in 2016 that we still need deacons in the church as the church gets more complex, as there are more ministries. Sometimes we appoint deacons to take care of these needs or these ministries to allow the elders to focus on the roles that they are to play in the church. So you'll see that we have currently three deacons here at Centennial Church. Jim Hessen is the one uh, lucky one in Rome today. Doug Gwines sitting right over here is our facility deacon and John Watkins, our deacon of stewardship, okay? So we believe that this is important. This is the biblical model and I'm making a point of it because we see it here in Philippians. A church is not a church just because some people believe in Jesus and get around in a circle with coffee and open the Bible and talk about the Bible. That doesn't make a church, Many of us have 
perhaps you're sitting here this morning, you've been burned by church before. The tendency often is to separate yourselves from the local church because of bad experiences or whatever. I understand that. But what I want us to embrace, what I'm teaching us this morning is to be a church, to be a part of the body is not just to sit in a circle, open your Bible and drink coffee with some friends who want to talk about the scriptures. That's good, but that doesn't make a church. Paul is saying here that a church is not only saints, but it has this structure. It has this organization of elders and deacons. It has not only form, but function for those leaders. It also has these things that we practice, and we will at the end of our service, communion and baptism. And so I would submit to you this morning, even if you've been burned by the church, you need to be part of a local church so that you can benefit from leaders who have been called by God to shepherd you, to teach you. You need to be a part of a local church so that you can celebrate baptism and communion the way the New Testament has set it up. So we see here the two authors, the two offices, elders and deacons. Now this brings up a question. You might be sitting here thinking, okay, you got elders and deacons, but don't you also have staff people? I mean, don't you have a children's minister? Don't you have an a, a administrative person? Don't you have uh, associate pastors? Don't you have other people on staff? Yes, we do. How does that fit within what the Bible has described for leadership of a church, elders and deacons? Well, here's the way we do it. The Bible does give us flexibility to pay those who are working hard at the ministry. That's clear throughout the New Testament, okay? If you want to talk to me more about this, happy to give you more detail. But what, the way we view our staff at Centennial Church is that they are basically, uh, sometimes they are functioning as elders in their roles, in their responsibilities. Sometimes they are, fo- sometimes they are functioning as deacons. They are both serving as well as leading and teaching and shepherding and managing. Does that make sense? So we have elders and deacons and we have staff people that sometimes merge the responsibilities, the roles of both elders and deacons. Okay, happy to talk about that more. Uh, But we do believe there's a place for children's ministry. We do believe that there's a place for youth pastors and other things other than just elders and deacons. But oftentimes those roles uh, combine, they converge the roles of both elder as well as deacon. So let's move forward here. Two authors, two offices, two gifts, and also, or excuse me, two authors, two offices, and now two gifts, okay? What are the gifts that are given here? Well, you see in verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. What is grace? What is peace? Grace here is not just a flowery, nice salutation, a way of saying hi. Grace, hello. It's a salutation, but it's also much bigger that grace is the foundation of the whole Christian life. Grace means God's unmerited favor. It is is the position that he gives us before him, unmerited favor because of grace. It's the beginning of the Christian life. It pulls us through the Christian life from beginning to end. The Christian life is about grace. Look at the very last verse of Philippians. The very last verse of Philippians, chapter four, verse 23. How does he end the letter? He ends it in the same way he starts it. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The unmerited favor of God be with your spirit. Grace is that 
position that we've been given of rightness before God. Grace is also the power that God gives us daily to live in faith, to live in obedience to him. The beginning of the letter grace, the end of the letter grace. The Christian life begins in grace. It's sustained by grace. It finishes by God's grace. A result of our grace is peace. Because of God's grace, because Romans, you might look at Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1 says this. What does it say? I think we have a scripture on it. Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Do we have that one? Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, having been put right by God, we now have peace with God. When we talk about peace according to the New Testament, we're first one meaning of that peace is that because of God's grace, because we have received Jesus into our lives, we are now at peace with God. Whereas we were once enemies of God, now we have, we have peace with God. Because we have accepted Jesus the Savior, we are no longer at odds with God. We are at peace with God. That peace comes through God's grace. Grace brings peace. It's that status of justification before God. But not only is it that status, not only is it that status, that position, but we also get peace day by day, moment by moment, as we rely on the grace of God to live for God. Let me show you what I mean by that. If you flip over to Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven, look at this. Philippians four, six and seven says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then check out verse seven. Verse seven says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying, when you feel anxious, When you feel worried, the prescription is to let your request, to to give your worry to God. That's the command. And what is the result of that? Peace. If you will do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart. So there's a peace that we have because we are saved, because we have believed in Jesus. You, you now have peace with God, but there's also a day-by-day, moment-by-moment where we are walking with God and we're saying, God, I'm struggling here. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. I need you, God. I'm giving you this burden. I'm giving you this worry. And what happens as a result of that, according to Philippians 4, verse 7? The peace of God guards your heart. So it's positional, it's, well, it's also experiential. The gifts that God brings us, he'll fill this out as we go through the book of Philippians. Grace, which leads to peace. The unmerited favor of God leads to peace with God, leads to peace within our hearts. That's the two gifts. The two persons, the two persons quickly, and then we'll move on to the two identities. The two persons, obviously, uh, in verse two, the two persons are God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's significant that Paul here is describing God, that the title that he is giving to God is Father. Because formerly, when we were enemies from God, when we were walking in disobedience to God, God was not our Father. We were at war with God. We've rebelled against God. But now, by faith, 
We have become children of God. God is now our Father if you have trusted Jesus. So John chapter 1 verse 12 says it like this. John 1 12 says, But as many as received him, Jesus, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now God is your Father. If you have believed in Jesus, God is your Father. It's often, I often hear it, and you might see this on CNN or whatever television show, you'll see people say, but hey, you know, everyone is a child of God. God created the whole world. Everyone is his child. Well, in a sense, that's true. Because God is creator, we all belong to him. But in another sense, technically, according to the New Testament, we are not. All people are not children of God. The Bible would teach that we are estranged from God that we become a child of God through spiritual birth. If you've received Jesus, you're a son, you're a daughter of God. But if you have not received Jesus, you are not a child of God. Because of God's grace, God is now our Father. And notice the description that he gives of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. What comes to your mind when you think about Lord Probably master or uh, ruler. If you were a slave in the, in the first century, you might call your master, you might call your slave owner, Lord. You might refer to uh, the king or the governor as Lord or someone you respect. The word Lord here is a, is a sign of Jesus' divinity. It's a sign of his power. It's a, it's a sign, it's a, it's a word that symbolizes Jesus is not just our buddy, but that he's our master, God, our father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. But the amazing thing is this. The amazing thing is he's going to talk about in Philippians chapter two is that the Lord Jesus Christ became our servant. Look at chapter two, verses five through seven. This Lord became our servant. Chapter two, verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto. But verse seven, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Apostle Paul is setting us up here. He's saying that God is our Father and Jesus Christ is our Master, our Lord. But get, how did our Lord come to us? He came to us as a servant. Therefore, you also serve. Which leads in to our final point here. The final couplets, our two identities, and it's beautiful the way Paul is setting up this whole letter, the beautiful way that he shows our identities here is that of saints and servants. Saints in Philippi, but also servants. Let me ask you this question. What was Paul's role in the church at this point? What was his title, if you will? Apostle. Paul was an apostle of God. That's a big word. That's a big term. We don't have apostles anymore today. 
But the apostle Paul was an apostle, but how does he address the church in Philippi? What title does he give himself? Not apostle, servant. That's really significant. Underline servant in your Bible. That's really significant because in other places, in other letters, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, as I mentioned before, Paul is going to write to them with some rebuke. And how is he going to describe himself? He's going to describe himself as Paul the apostle. But look at how he describes himself to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants. Servants of Jesus. This guy who had all the authority in the church as an apostle doesn't assert his authority. He asserts his humility. The fact that he is a servant. Not only are we servants, folks, Paul was an apostle. He was also a servant. We are also saints. Look at how he describes the church in Philippi. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Who is he calling saints here? He's calling saints a bunch of ragtag believers. One of them was a demon-possessed little girl. The other was a successful businesswoman. And the other saint One of the saints that he's referring to is this Philippian jailer who got radically converted. He's calling those three people and others that have become believers in Philippi, he's calling them saints. Here's what you need to hear this morning. If you believe in Jesus, if you are a Christian here this morning, these first two verses are giving you a clear identity of who you are. You need to know who you are this morning. Right here in two verses, Paul says, you are a servant and you are a saint. Amen. Now, let me, tell you why you need to, let me tell you why you need to know that. And let me tell you why you need to keep those two things together, saint and, and servant. I have here from my pocket, what? A quarter. Had to borrow this this morning, by the way. Uh, I, don't, I don't carry change, so I owe Brent 25 cents, Okay. If you pull out a quarter that you have, you know what to expect on a quarter, right? On one side, you're going to have heads. On the other side, you're going to have tails, right? This one right here just so happens to be from California, okay? It's a left coast coin, all right? But if I showed you a quarter and it had neither heads nor tails, what would your response be to that coin? You're saying, that's not an authentic coin. That doesn't look right. It's not fully a quarter, if you will, Here's the point. Saints and servants, both sides of the same coin. To have an authentic quarter, you got to have both sides. To be an authentic Christian, you got to have both of those identities. One, that you're a servant. Two, that you are a saint. You're a saint. Now, many of us, when we think about being a saint, you all sorts of crazy images come to our mind. First of all, we're thinking about Mother Teresa or something. Maybe you're thinking of St. Francis of Assisi. The Catholic church over here is named after St. Francis. A lot of times, the way the world thinks about sainthood is actually wrong. It's actually the inverse of the way the Bible describes sainthood. You have to have some special purity, some special holiness to be a saint. That is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, get this, I think we have a slide of this. The world says for sainthood, serve now 
and you are given sainthood. Be a really good person, Mother Teresa, serve now, and then when you die or so, at some point later in your life, people will give you sainthood. You will become a saint. That is wrong. That is unbiblical. That is not what the Bible teaches about sainthood. The Bible teaches the inverse, the opposite. The Bible teaches that you are given sainthood when you believe in Jesus, and then now the rest of your life is what? Serving in response to what you've been given. And we can look at two people serving the poor, giving their lives away to help society, uh, feeding the poor, feeding the hungry. We can look at both of those people and they might be doing the same thing, but their motivation and their rationale for doing it are completely the opposite. As believers in Jesus, we don't serve to get sainthood. We don't serve to get position. We serve because we've been given sainthood. I wrote it down in my notes like this. Biblical sainthood is not about your personal purity before the world, but your personal position before the Lord. Let me say that one more time. Biblical sainthood is not about your personal purity before the world, but your personal position before the Lord. When you trust in Jesus, you are made a saint. The word saint comes from the word holy. It means you're set apart. It means God has showered his grace and his love on you. You now belong to him. You are set apart. Not only are you his saints, but you could substitute there, you are his son or his daughter. Because of his grace, by his grace, he has made you saints. He has made you a son or daughter of the king. Sainthood is God's gift of grace. Service is our response to grace. You see the difference? Servanthood, sainthood. But both must be present to have a right view of ourselves. Both. You're a saint. You're a son or daughter of the king. That should give you confidence. But the flip side of the coin is what? You're also a servant. You're also a servant. So I say it like this. When I find myself discouraged, I don't know if you're like me, maybe you're not, but maybe you do occasionally find yourself discouraged. What do I do? When I find myself discouraged, I recall that I am a saint. I'm a son of the king. But when I find myself proud, I recall that I'm a servant, a servant of the king. And if you don't have both of those things in place, you're gonna have a whacked out, lopsided view of yourself. Because if you only see yourself as a saint, man, let the pride come. But if you only see yourself as a servant, that's trouble too. Think about your kids. As you raise your kids, what do, you, what do you want them to know? Man, you want them to know that they are dearly loved, one of a kind, unique creations, dearly loved by you, dearly loved by God. But what do you not want to happen? A bunch of bratty, entitled little kids, right? <laughs> So you have to help them understand that the world is not here to serve you. You are here to serve yourself. Kids, you're both saints, beloved sons and daughters, and also servants. Before this service, I always spend some time with our 
kids' teachers, because guess what? Every Sunday, they're back there serving while we're in here worshiping together. And as I look, as I met with those teachers before church this morning, here's, here, here are folks that lead divisions at their company. Here are people that are top salesmen in their industry, in their company. And what are they doing? They're coming early on daylight savings morning to serve a bunch of five, six, seven-year-olds to change the diapers of one-year-olds. See, they have position in this world, but they've rightly found themselves serving in light of the grace that God has given them. You may be big stuff when you go to work on Monday. You may be big stuff in the PTA or whatever it is. You might be big stuff no matter what you do. Praise God. But the Bible is also telling you, at the end of the day, you are also a servant. A servant of the king. A dearly loved son or daughter, but also a servant. You may start your morning. You're like, man, I, I used to be somebody. I used to have a job. People used to report to me. I used to be, kind of have things going on. And now I'm home all day, vacuuming, wiping the butts of little kids. What has happened? (laughs) You're a saint. But you're also a servant. And folks, that's noble. That's noble. Saint and servant, you've got to hold them together. Here's how you hold them together. Here's how you stay focused. Because Christ Jesus, the Lord, the saintliest of them all, did what? He stooped and served us. Jesus Christ is the perfect model and motivation for you and I as we follow Jesus to serve Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning two questions. Have you embraced your belovedness? Paul calls you a saint. He calls you a son, a daughter. Have you embraced your belovedness of a king? But secondly, have you embraced your servanthood? We're saints who serve. You know what's surprising in this passage here that we've looked at? What's surprising is that an apostle would not call himself an apostle, but call himself a servant. You know what's more surprising than that? That the apostle would call the Philippians and call you and I saints. (laughs) That's surprising. But you know what's the most surprising thing of all? The most surprising thing of all is that the perfectly holy God would become our servant. Wash the disciples' feet. Cleanse us and go to death on a cross to serve us and make us saints. Close your eyes and pray with me. I want to invite our communion servers to come forward as we pray here. I can't think of a better way to picture this passage and to be reminded of its beauty than to end our message this morning by partaking of communion.
Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you that you have showered grace upon us, grace upon grace, that you've made us saints, that you've made us sons and daughters, and you've done that at the costly price of your son Jesus, who came and loved us to the point of death, served us by living a perfect life, dying a perfect death, spilling his blood and breaking his body to pay the debt that we owed. Father, we thank you for that grace and we thank you for the victory of Jesus that we will celebrate in a few weeks, the empty tomb, the conquering of sin and death. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you, for Jesus, for serving us. It's in your beautiful name that we pray.